Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. Turn to 1 Kings 18, and I'm going to pray for us. 1 Kings 18, Jesus, we love you, we bless you, we worship you, we're grateful, Lord, for community, we're grateful for the gifts that you've placed in this church, and yeah, Lord, I just take a moment and say thank you for Chelsea's life and leadership and love for our children and the people of our church, and we just bless what you're doing in her life right now, Lord. And we just give you all these things, God, and we trust you with everything you're doing here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So first, Kings, we're talking about revival, and uh, we're continuing our series, tracking through biblical revivals through scripture. And again, I just want to reiterate, each week our goal is to ground ourselves in God's word about how he acts in the midst of history to bring his people back to him, to bring revival about. And one of the keys that we want to do is we want to allow our imaginations to be shaped by God's word, by God's power, by his story. And what happens when his power and presence shows up in our midst? And I I just believe, and we believe as a church, that we're in a time in history where we need a move of God. We need revival, both in our personal lives, in our city, in our state, in our nation, on the earth. We need God to show up today as he has in the past. And so in 1 Kings 18, uh, it really kind of starts in 17, but it tells the story of Elijah and how God calls Elijah and sends him to Israel as a prophet. And so what I want to do is I'm going to situate ourselves historically just for a moment, and then we're going to talk through the story. We're not going to read it all because it would be the whole sermon time if I read the whole story. So I'm going to paraphrase, and uh, you can follow along in that, uh, that chapter 18. But historically, so you, you've got Israel right now. Elijah shows up. It's been 58 years since the kingdom was ripped apart, 931 BC. The kingdom gets split into two. And there's um, 10 northern tribes and there's two southern tribes. It's been almost a full century since David and Solomon's reign. So think about the glory of David's reign, the glory of Solomon's reign, and then think about basically a hundred years of decline. Imagine what that does to generations and to families and to individuals as this thing just starts to roll downhill and there seems to be no stopping uh, during this really relatively brief time, the northern tribes have been ruled over by seven kings. So we'll track them. Jeroboam, who installed the two calves designed to replace the worship of Yahweh. So their first king after this is an idolater who actually um, uh, defiles the holy of holies, the place of worship, by putting idols in it. Then you have, uh, I'm going to read these names. I don't know how they're pronounced. Okay, so just bear with me. N- Nadab. 
Um, I haven't, nobody's grabbed that one yet. All the new biblical names people are doing, nobody's grabbed Nadab. Um, who walked in the sins of his father, so he just basically did everything Jeroboam did. Then you have Bashah, who murdered Nadab. Didn't end well for Nadab, but Shah was like, you're out, I'm in. You have Elah, a drunkard and a murderer. Zimri, who was guilty of treason. Omri, a military adventurer who did worse than all who were before him. So he's like, hold my beer, watch this. Can you say that in church? Um, it's pop culture, friends. I'm not actually talking about, anyways. But anyways, so Omri, he's worse than all these other guys. And then finally, Omri's son, Ahab, who did more evil. So it's literally, they start one-upping each other. He's like, you think that guy was bad? Just wait. I'm going to be worse. Israel, once again, is in need of revival from God. And you have to think that all of the God-fearing, faithful people across these generations are just literally asking you the same question, where are you, God? Where are you? How long, right? You can realize why they wrote Psalm 42. How long, O Lord? Why? Where are you? Why do we have such bad leaders and why do they keep getting worse? Elisha actually says in the next generation, where now is the Lord? Where are you, God? But in the midst of this, God does what he always seems to do. He chooses a person to bear his message to his people. He plucks Elijah out. Verse, uh, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe, Tishbe, Tishba, and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord of God of Israel lives, before, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain in these years except by my word. God chooses this guy from a lowly backwater place that no one cared about, and he was just a nobody on all accounts. I love it, it gives no background to Elijah. He has no background story, no preamble, no, like he was faithful for all these years, and so God rewarded him. You're just like, hey, this guy showed up, God chose him. He arrives on the scene with a message from God. And, and it's like, basically like the equivalent of a farmer from like Poto, Oklahoma, showing up at the White House. Who's been to Poto? Chris Dunning has been to Poto. Okay, anybody, else, right? It's like this guy's showing up at the White House going like, hey, I've got a message from God. What do you think people would say? They, they would just probably break out laughing. They'd be like, this guy is not serious. He has no credentials. Who are you and how would we ever believe that you're from God? But he doesn't. In this royal audience, he gets an audience with the king and he declares who the real king is over Israel. I love that. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, he's alive. God is alive and he knows. He's sending a message. He's been watching. This hasn't escaped his knowledge, his sight, what's been happening. He says, before whom I stand. And I love, he's like, I'm standing before you, but ultimately I'm standing before God. Coram Deo, before the face of God, I am living. I, I know that my life exists in two realms at one time. I live in the physical realm and yet... In another way, I'm standing before God's face. All of my actions, all of my motives, all of my ambitions, all of my loves are clear to him. He's not fooled. Elijah possessed a vision of God that exceeded the reality of human power, human royalty. I think that's just a key learning for us today is to get our hearts and our minds around the power of the God who lives the God who is alive, the God who is real, and to live our lives in the physical material realm in that knowledge, the God who lives, 
we must, as God's people, come into contact with this God in a way that transforms us and receive from him a vision that's more than politics, more than careers, more than finance, more than spiritual legacies or family legacies, more than refugee crisis, more than what's happening in the here and now. We need to come in contact with the living God and get a, a transformation of vision. And when we get possessed by the vision that God has for the world, he does in us what we cannot do for ourselves. He does something inside of us that allows us to work on his behalf that we can't do without that vision, without that transformation. And so this happens in Elijah's life and you see three things. The first thing is that God gives him courage. The second thing is that God shows his power. And the third thing is that God answers his prayer. And, and the story goes like this. Elijah gets this word from God. He shows up to Ahab and he tells him there'll be no rain for three years except by my word. Can you imagine the kind of power that God granted Elijah? That at his word, it would either rain or not rain. And then three years go by, Elijah shows back up. God says, go back to Ahab and I want you to tell him that it's going to rain and it's from me, but I want to send you to battle first with the false gods that Israel has received. So Israel had started worshiping Baal, the Canaanite God. They started sacrificing, and the scripture says even at moments they sacrificed children on the altar there. I've been to the place in Megiddo in Israel where there's a giant about 30 by 30 altar where they would do these sacrifices. And you can imagine Israel forsaking God, the God of their heritage and receiving a false God. And, and Elijah shows up and he says, okay, let's have a contest. Do you guys remember this story? He says, let's have a contest between your God and my God and see who shows up because my God is the God who shows up with what? Fire. That's right. He shows up with fire. He, says, he goes, set an altar. He sets an altar with 12 stones, 12 large stones, which is interesting. Elijah foreshadows the reunification of the kingdom that says God is always bringing things back together that human beings split apart. Sets this altar up. He says, make your sacrifices and see what happens. So they start yelling and screaming and cutting themselves and nothing, nothing. Elijah starts, like we record the first trash talk, I think in history. Elijah's like, where, where is he? Is he sleeping? What's happening with your God? Right, there's probably some your mama jokes in there and some stuff. He was like, you guys ain't got nothing, U-G-L-Y. Like, you know, there's, there's, I mean, he is sitting back and I love it because you got to think, he's like pretty confident that this is going to work out for him, right? So you typically only trash talk if you're pretty good at whatever you do. And, and if you're trash talking, you're not good, just stop, please. Like if you're playing sports right now, you're trash talking. Don't trash talk if you're not good, right? So Elijah's just giving him the business and nothing happens. And finally, it says they go all the way till the hour of the evening sacrifice, Right? They're, they're in this place where sacrifices shouldn't be made because they've abandoned the Holy of Holies. They're making a sacrifice on a high place they shouldn't be making. Elijah realigns Israel in this moment with the evening sacrifice. He puts all this stuff together and he goes, pour water on it. He's like, do it again, do it again. And he's like, he makes this simple prayer to God and God pours fire from heaven that consumes the sacrifice and sucks up all the water in the place. It's an incredible, miraculous encounter with God, right? And then they all confess, the Lord is God, he is God, the Lord, he is God, right? And then what does Elijah do with the prophets of Baal? He says, everybody get together, take care of those guys. He wipes them out, 
crazy encounter. But what I want to do this morning is rather than focus maybe on the the details of the story, they're important, and I encourage you to like spend some time this week in your quiet time just resting in this story, listening to what the Lord would say. But I I, want to focus on that first point that I think God wants to do in us this morning, and that's that when God works in your life in this way, he deposits into your heart courage. Elijah operated with a level of courage that is astounding. And and it's not courage that comes from human heart, human will, human ability. It's courage that comes from a person who gets possessed by the word of God. And I don't mean just this word of God. I mean Jesus, the word of God. He gets possessed with this thing and God gives him courage. And so what I think is possible this morning is I think it's possible for you to come into contact with the living God in such a way that he can deposit courage in your life to do the things that he's called you to do in the midst of the history that you're living in. I think he has courage for the church in these days to hear his word and get possessed by the vision of the kingdom of heaven again, purify ourselves and live in such a way that people would say there is a God, (laughs) the Lord, he is God, Jesus is king. Elijah faces his opponent head on. And when we have things in our lives, the issues of our lives, God gives us the ability to face them with courage. Whatever it is you're facing today, if you can get into contact with God, hear his voice, and believe you can walk courageously with him. It doesn't matter what it is. And we can take comfort this morning that there's nothing new under the sun. There's no situation in this room right now that someone hasn't already walked faithfully with the Lord through and seen God fulfill his promises. So biblical courage, right, isn't about being reckless. It's not about being macho. It's not about um, arrogance or overconfidence. It's about, and it's not about ignoring reality. Biblical confidence isn't ignoring the facts of your life. It's not acting like everything's good, right? Jeremiah says, you say peace, peace, where there's no peace. That's not biblical courage. Biblical courage acknowledges reality, but it stands in the face of obstacles with faith that Jesus fulfills his promises, that he will be with us, that the Holy Spirit lives in us and promises to help us. So courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the decision to move forward in the face of fear. It's, it's the ability to see God through the fog of fear and actually move with him forward. And I think courage ultimately is embracing the risk of being alive. Right? So the question this morning is, are you alive? Yes. If you're alive in this room, you're living and breathing, you have things you're facing. You have difficulties, you have trouble, you have suffering, you have wounds, you have areas of your life that are out of joint with God or with the other, other human beings. You're alive. <laughs> and so our, our role as human beings under God is to embrace the risk of our life to embrace the risk of living. God sets two human beings into the garden together and he's like, I love it, Frederick Buechner's like, it's like God says, here's the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. (laughs) Here's the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen to you, around you, and to the people you love. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God's with you. He loves you. It's the risk of loving, the risk of loss, the risk of dying, the risk of grief, 
the risk of betrayal, but not just the risk of life, the risk for life, the risk for joy, the risk for abundance, the risk for victory, the risk for reconciliation, the risk for goodness. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one and nothing, not even an animal. You must carefully wrap it around with hobbies and little luxuries and routine and avoidances of entanglement, and then lock it up in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. And this means that in the long run, the alternative to tragedy, or at least the threat of tragedy, is damnation. For in that casket, safe, still, and unventilated in the darkness, it will go bad. Not broken, but finally unbreakable, impenetrable, resistant to all good and joy. Interesting thing is heartbreak will come to your life. The question is, where will it find you? Will it find you living faithfully before God or will it find us with our back turned toward God and his purposes and trying to avoid suffering? Suffering is a fact of life. This world's full of it. Nobody gets to avoid it. Even Jesus, the very son of God, didn't get to avoid the cross. He received his share as a human being. So I'm gonna talk about courage and what this looks like. What does it look like for us to live in these days? Because here's what I think. I think where we're going as a generation, as a culture, what's happening in the world, we will need courage to live the way of Jesus in the world. And I'm gonna, I, I wish I had a warning label on this sermon. I am going to offend you this morning, but I just wanna let you know, I'm, I'm hopefully gonna offend everyone, all right? So we're all in this together. So just, just know if you're the first one who gets offended this morning, there's, the person next to you, it's coming next, right? So um, Andy Crouch is one of my favorite authors, amazing guy. He came up, uh, he wrote a book called Strong and Weak, and he came up with this two-by-two axis. Raise your hand if you love two-by-twos. Anybody love two-by-twos? Greg Dewey's like, ah, coach, this is awesome. Uh, two-by-two. So he, he would say there's this axis of authority and there's an axis of vulnerability, Right, and so, so on one end, right, the top right, as you look at it, the top right would be human beings living with high authority and high vulnerability, right? So, so if, think about it this way, authority is meaningful capacity for action. Think about that, okay? Authority is meaningful capacity for action. You have the ability, the agency to act in the world, right? And vulnerability is the meaningful exposure to risk. So think about those two things. One is the, the, the capacity to act. The other is exposure to risk, right? And what Andy Crouch is going to argue, I'm going to argue this morning, is that human beings were created to live in the upper right, to live with maximum capacity for action, maximum th authority, and maximum risk, vulnerability, being woundable in the world. On the other side, you have people who live with high authority and low vulnerability. We're gonna talk about that on the bottom left corner. You have people who live with low authority and low vulnerability. On the bottom right, you have people who live with high vulnerability and low authority, which means they have maximum exposure to risk and minimal ability to act to change their circumstances. So what does this look like? So the, that top left, right, is, is high authority, low vulnerability, and that looks like exploitation. And so I'm gonna give you a couple examples from pop culture, so, so be ready. So the first one looks like this. It's a US congresswoman who attends the Met Gala, which is $35,000 per ticket, 
where the wealthy and the elite gather to display their wealth and their fashion, while all the staff have to dress in all black so as not to draw attention to themselves. The staff's all wearing masks while all the celebrities are unmasked and she's wearing a dress that says tax the rich. This to me represents high authority with low vulnerability. It's a statement without substance, right? So if you're offended by that, just, just it's okay, because the next one looks like this. <laughs> so this is our former president standing in front of a church in Washington, D.C., holding a Bible. Again, I think this represents high authority with low vulnerability, making a statement without substance. You know who I would respect holding a Bible in public in front of people? Somebody who stands in the middle of of Pakistan in a large city and holds up a Bible and says, I'm a Christian. Someone who leads a church in China and walks around with a Bible and says, I'm a believer, so what? Right? So here's what I'd say. Maximum authority without vulnerability is always performative. (laughs) It's performing to say I am something without taking also the risk of the people you say you represent. This is super challenging because this is really attractive to us as Americans. It's really attractive to go like, what I really want is maximum ability to act in the world while also lessening my risk of what might happen to me or what I might have to do or say or go through if my virtues get challenged with actions, performative. Uh, One person wrote an article, I'd highly recommend you believe it. He says, uh, you know, before it was like, leisure was the ultimate result of wealth. The leisure class, that's how you let people know that you're wealthy. Now he would call it luxury beliefs. (laughs) And he would say luxury beliefs, let me read you this this sentence. Um, Luxury beliefs are ideas and opinions that confer status on the rich at very little cost while taking tolls on the lower class. Luxury beliefs. And this guy, so he went to Yale And he was like, I was shocked at the elite classes of society, how performative people's beliefs are and how detached they are from the actual people they say they represent, right? So if you were to go um, to a black neighborhood in Oklahoma City and ask somebody if they understand what the word heteronormativity meant, I guarantee you they would not know it. But if you go to Yale and go, what's heteronormativity? You'd have 19-year-olds who could explain all that stuff and cisgender and all these words and terms that represent luxury beliefs that aren't connected to real people. And Jesus had these people in his day, people who said they believed in God, people who said they did these things and yet with their lives. So what did he say to the Pharisees? He says, woe to you Pharisees who do what? You tie up heavy loads and place them on other people's backs and yet you don't lift a finger to help them. That's maximum authority, minimum vulnerability. You love that other people have to bear the burden of your choices while you get to live your life going to galas and taking vacations and being in the halls of power and it's costing you nothing. Bottom corner, 
right? So that's one, is people who pursue power without vulnerability. The bottom corner is people who give up everything, right? They, they're like, hey, I don't want any power. All I want is to minimize my risk. Look at this chart, this is from Redfin. April of 20, in the middle of lockdown, what happened to second home purchases in the middle of lockdown? Do you see that? Anybody see the spike there? Look at that spike. What did the wealthy do in America when we got locked down? They bought second homes at a rate we've never seen before. Why? Ask yourself, really, why? What do you think? What's your theory? I think it was to escape. <laughs> right? We've all heard the stories about the Zoom class, right? It's the people who can sit at home and work from a screen, right? And minimize our risk of catching a contagious disease while who delivers our food and our groceries and our stuff? Who does that stuff, right? The poor, the marginalized, the underside of power. And at the same time, we say, hey, I don't mind if this goes on forever, masks, mandates, all this stuff. You know why? Because I'm pretty happy in my lake house with internet because I can do my job. I own assets, and guess what? The market's doing, doing this. And, and Greg Dewey, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying Jesus says you can't own a second home. What I'm saying is if your second home is to avoid the suffering and difficulty and risk of the world, Jesus would say that's sinful. I just think that's true. And you can disagree, we're all adults, but I, I just think if you're using your wealth and power to avoid the people that Jesus came to die for, you're not living his way. It's another example. It's the Instagram travel influencer. <laughs> it's people who literally make money by traveling the world and setting up fake scenarios and make the rest of us unhappy with our lives because <laughs> we're sitting in a cubicle or going to work or just struggling and you're like, who are these people? And I'll just say it's not real. It's not real life. It's an avoidance of life. It's an avoidance of life. So what do we see at the bottom right? So the bottom right is we see where all the risk that gets offloaded by the left side where it lands. Your, your risk doesn't go away if you're avoiding it. Your risk gets outsourced. And your risk lands on people who are maximally vulnerable with little ability to change their situation. So this is a picture of Haitian refugees crossing the river in the United States. Right? So this is, this is why it's important that we don't use our authority to avoid or to control. So on the top right, it's power and control. On the bottom left, it's abdication of our ability to make a difference in the world, to love people, to live the way of Jesus, right? It looks like homeless camps and it looks like people living on the margins of society. It's suffering, it's poverty. Looks like Afghans cramming a plane in hopes to get to this country. That's, this is what maximum vulnerability with minimum authority looks like. Then you have the top right, 
where Jesus, I think, calls us to live, where God created you to live. And here's what I just wanna say. God created you to live this way and until you live in that zone, you will not be happy. (laughs) Doesn't matter how much money you make, how much power you get, how healthy your kids are, how much fun you can create in your life. If you don't know this zone of living, you will never be truly happy. We see Mother Teresa. And it's amazing. Mother Teresa is just living in the slums doing the same thing every day. She becomes a celebrity kind of later in life, but I love that she never changed what she did. She never built this platform to go tell people. She just kept giving dignity to the dying. And it's amazing. She didn't even have a vision for changing the world. She wasn't like, oh, we're changing the world. We're going to do this. She's like, no, no, our only goal is to give dignity to the dying. You have Martin Luther King Jr., a man who embraced maximum authority with maximum vulnerability. Who didn't just go teach, he didn't just go pursue power, he actually marched with the people. He sat in the restaurants, he rode the buses. He lived his life taking on the vulnerability of the people that God had called him to love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who resisted the Nazis in Hitler's Germany, who ends up getting martyred two weeks before they get freed. Can you imagine that? He missed freedom by 14 days. And he gets hung in a concentration camp. And it was interesting to me, as I thought about this quadrant and I picked these three people to represent this, I realized all three of them basically died. I was like, ooh, that sounds like Jesus. And Mother Teresa didn't get martyred, but I think she just got martyred every day of her life. She just died to self. And so you see this, I love this one of my favorite pictures, in the middle of a riot in Ukraine, you have priests. Instead of picking a side, where did they go? They went to the middle and they held up a cross trying to remind people of the peace of Jesus Christ in the midst of violence. So you see this, right? The upper right corner represents Jesus and his cross. That's the offer to us. He's saying, I have made you to live with maximum authority, just like me. Jesus comes to earth with all the authority over heaven, like in heaven, on the earth, under the earth. He said, God's given to me a name above all names, right? And he comes here with his authority. And then what does he do? He takes on the vulnerability of human beings, right? He didn't despise even the shame of death on a cross and he gives himself for us. And so what it looks like for Christians is Christians to live in that top right corner and to call people out of the other quadrants, to call people into life that is life, life that is life. And so we see Jesus like sending us back into the world and drawing people out of these places. But I love Elijah, he ends up in front of these people and he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. I think we have a choice today as Americans about who is God. Is Caesar a Lord? Because let's just be honest, the contest of, of our day is about lordship. It's about allegiance. It's about who are you following? If the Lord is God, then follow him. And guess what? If your political party is God, then follow that, right? If the markets are God, then follow the markets. If your family's God, then follow family. But the Lord's God, then give your life to him. Embrace it. 
So what do you do? God says, be courageous. These are days to be courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be strong and courageous. Do not be fear or in dread of them. For it's the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And then David, I love, tells us Solomon, be strong and courageous and what? And do it. This is Shia LaBeouf moment. I should have shown the video. Just do it. Mm. Yeah, be strong and courageous and do it. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. The Lord your God, even my God is with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. I love Ephesians says, finally be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Don't be strong in your might. Don't be strong in your resources. Don't be strong in your intelligence, in your creativity, in your abilities, in your power. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Guess what? Armor is useless if you're not in the battle. So you can't actually fulfill this verse unless you get in the game that God is playing for the world. He's in a contest for the world and he's saying, you're a player. Get in the game. Put on your armor. Why? So that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore Stand in the place God's put you. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also uh, with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. You can be strong and courageous because you have an intercessor in heaven who holds all authority with the Father. What shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Christ, Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, no, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, listen to this list, angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, or I will say your past, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can be courageous because the truth of God is win, is gonna win. It's gonna win in your life. So what does this look like? I've just got three areas. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. We're gonna close with prayer. What do we see in Elijah's life? The first thing is we see the courage to show up. Elijah just shows up. And and I, I don't want to like undersell this, the courage for you to show up for your own life. Just the courage to show up for the life that you are in fact living, the reality that you're facing. We don't bury our head in the sand. We don't, uh, we don't give in to denial. We say, this is where I am and here are the facts about my life. I'm gonna show up to the fight. I'm gonna show up to the fight. If it's family stuff, it's family stuff. If it's past wounds, it's past wounds. If it's business failure, it's business. Whatever it is, God wants to give you the courage to show up for your life. My brother has this amazing story. He was an addict, really struggling with addiction, and and just really hit the bottom in his life and, and came out of that and really just 
I mean, by the closest of margins, made it out of addiction. And we were praying for him for years. My parents, I'm talking 20 years praying for this man. Just God, bring him back. Don't let him, I mean, the prayer was don't let him die. You know, you're desperate when the prayer isn't for something like big. It's just like, God, spare his life so that he might have a chance. God spared his life. He comes home. He gets out of addiction. He takes a job at a call center that buys and sells used cell phones. He's working part-time. He's going to make $400 a day. And I'm just telling you, the courage to show up for that job day after day after day to just dial and sell and dial and sell and dial and just do it. And you know what? Seven years later, he's the vice president of his company. (laughs) He's getting married. He just adopted two beautiful kids. God has redeemed his story, but his courage was that first day, that first week, that first month, that six months of just showing up for his life and saying, I'm going to live in the midst of adversity and tragedy and sin and shame and failure, and I'm not giving up. Because as long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep showing up for this thing, right? The second thing we see in Elijah is the courage to speak up. He says what God puts on his heart in the moment. He says, I'm not going to stay silent about who God is and what he's done in my life. I'm not going to allow the pain and wounds of my life to silence me. I'm actually going to speak up. I'm going to say who God is and what he's done for me. The kingdom of Jesus, he was prepared to give an answer. And then I love the last one is the courage to step up. There's a moment of God saying, get in the right, go to that place in the place of risk and danger (laughs) and go do what I've called you to do. And I think there's just people in this room that God's saying this morning, hey, I want to give you courage to show up for your life to show up for me in your life. I want to give you courage to speak up, to gain a voice about who I am and what I'm doing in the world. You have a part to play. Revival's beautiful because everyone gets to play. It flattens the playing field. And the last is the courage to step into what God's doing in your life. Um, And so I want you to stand to your feet. And I was just like thinking and praying to the Lord about just like prayer this morning, how to respond. So I'm going to invite the prayer team to come down and just like the area of your life that maybe you need courage right now to operate in. You need courage to like show up for your life. And I don't know why, but one of the ones that was just really clear on my heart this morning was single parents. We've got some single parents in here. I just feel like the Lord saying, hey, this morning, I I just want you to pray courage for people in that specific situation. So if you're a single parent in here, I would love for you to come down and allow our team to just pour love, affirmation, courage, exhortation over your life. Because here's what I know. I've got a single parent in my family, and I know how much courage it takes to show up (laughs) for your life just wake up in the morning and go like, this is my reality. I will not give up. I will not give in. I will not draw back. I'm going to like pour my life into these people that God's given me. Amen. And part of that courage to show up is because you have a cloud of witnesses in this room who's willing to show up with you. 
You're not showing up alone. First, the Spirit of God says, I live in you. I'm showing up with you wherever you show up. Jesus goes, I will meet you wherever you go. And then you have the church who's saying, we will show up for you, with you. But it may be your business. It may be your family. It might be your marriage. It might be your children. But whatever it is, I just want to give a moment to pray for you. So will you pray with me? And then I just want to ask you, maybe a first act of courage is just to come forward. And just allow somebody to pray for you. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are king and Caesar is not. So this morning, Lord, we don't want to live in authority without vulnerability. We don't want to live without authority or vulnerability, Lord. And we don't want to allow others to live in vulnerability without authority, God. We refuse for that to be the story of our church, of our city, of our nation. So Jesus, would you come this morning and transform our eyes to see the places in our lives that we can move into authority with you and take on the vulnerability of this life, of this world, of our family, of our friendships, Lord, of our businesses, all those places, God, that you give us to live your way and your kingdom, we receive today. In Jesus' name, amen. So come as you feel led. We're just gonna sing for a little bit.